For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, we're taking back up again our series in Romans. The last message that I presented to you was from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And there we're told that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And that righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel works in such a way in the life of the individual who receives it or claims it that it carries them forward, you might say, from faith to faith. And what was being discussed here in the righteousness of God by Paul was in the gospel he's telling us that we have revealed to us the way in which a just God can justly forgive the unjust. How it is that a righteous God can righteously save those who are unrighteous. And so the righteousness of God that's referred to in verse 17 of Romans chapter 1 is a reference to the manner in which God's salvation comes to individuals and in no way compromises his own righteous character, but affirms it. God can only save us in a righteous way. God can only deliver us from our sins in a righteous way. And that's what has been accomplished, and that's what's being declared in the gospel. God has, in a sense, two choices for the sinner. The first choice is to utterly destroy them because of their sin. And the other choice is to save them and rescue them from their sins. But the only way that God can do this is in a way that comports with his own righteousness. The very way that God brings salvation must fully accord with his character. And as such, the Bible reveals to us that this idea of the righteousness of God and the salvation of God are linked together. And we showed that in our last message. We showed how David, when he had fallen to sin, he had actually orchestrated the murder of a man to hide his sin of committing adultery with that man's wife. How David then went to God and asked God to bring forgiveness to him. And how impossible is that? How can God forgive such an injustice? And yet, as David cries out and prays for it, he asks that God would save him righteously. David recognizes the only way that he can be saved is if God can find a way to righteously bring to him forgiveness and salvation. Later, David will rejoice in the salvation that God has brought to him. And you can read that in Psalm 65. There, David will again affirm the salvation of God and he will extol in the same breath the righteousness of God. God can only save in a righteous manner. So, God has a holy standard in which we have all sinned against. This standard has brought against us the sentence of death. That death is separation from that holy God and an impending, unending separation from him as well. Eternal death. And yet God loves us and God would reconcile us to himself. God would save us from a present and from a future without him. An endless future without him. But God would do this in a righteous way. And so, God becomes a man. God lives in Jesus Christ a perfect, sinless life, manifesting the perfect laws and will of God for the life of all people. And then this sinless one goes and dies in our place. And he takes on himself our sin and its punishment so that all those who would rest in his offering for them and his sacrifice for them 
and the punishment he bore for them and fully trust in his salvation alone may through faith receive God's salvation. May through their trust in him, faith to faith receive his salvation. What it means is this. This is the only way you can be saved. You're not going to be saved from your sins by your own acts of righteousness. There's nothing that you can perform and do that somehow will shed the sin in your life and merit the response of God for forgiveness. It can only come if there has been a sacrifice made on your behalf. You will either have to make it yourself or one who is perfect and sinless can make it for you. But who could that be? It's Jesus Christ. It's the only way in which we can be saved. And this is revealed, it says, in the gospel. And the way it's revealed is this. When an individual puts his trust and faith in Jesus Christ at that moment, God brings to him a revelation of this righteous way of God. God fills them with a flood, overwhelming sense that they are forgiven. God begins to flood them with this overwhelming realization that the conscious witness of their sin that is born against them and cast into shame has been lifted from them. And, you know, we don't forget our sins. We remember them, but we don't bear the weight of them anymore. They're removed from our life. They're not witnessing against us because we're forgiven and reconciled with God. And God brings to that individual a wave, the sense of being reconciled and brought into relationship with God. And it's a, it's a wonderful, energized, revelatory experience of salvation that comes to the believer and that the believer lives in. And oh, there are times when the enemy can come and our own sins and our own willfulness can cast a shadow over us for a moment. But oh, to remember, as Paul remembers in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In the midst of his sin and his struggle against temptation, to remember that in Christ we're free from the condemnation of the law and we're forgiven and we're right before God and That is the gospel, and that is what is being revealed of the righteous way of God for our salvation. But here now, Paul says that the gospel that reveals the righteous way of God in saving us, Paul says also this same gospel reveals to us the wrath of God against sin. God's righteousness to save and God's wrath to judge are both revealed in the gospel. That's the main thing that we want to see in our message this morning. We're going to consider now today just this idea of the wrath of God. There are those, and this has been a popular notion for over 100 years, who are eager to suggest that this depiction of God as a God of wrath is an antiquated notion that died with the angry God of the Old Testament. That was just a notion that was put upon God or that men believed in a more primitive area in a more primitive time, but these would suggest that the concepts of God have progressed from this fear-mongering tribal God of the Old Testament to a God of love who's found in the New Testament. These individuals who have purported this idea have constructed in their minds an image of God that mirrors their own view of human evolving, progressing enlightenment from fear to enlightenment, from superstition to modern people of science and understanding. A wrathful God is, in their minds, an archaic remnant of a less enlightened time when human beings were afraid of a lot of things. They were afraid of the shadows that were cast by the branches and the trees, and they were afraid of the times when the moon was not full, and they were afraid when the times when the moon was full, and they were afraid of the shadows as well that were cast by their fathers. So in this situation, they developed out of their fears these 
and projected these fears upon their idea of God, but today we're told that we've risen above most of our fears. At least this was the popular notion until not too long ago. Seems as though we're casting back into paganism and back into those fears again. But there was a time we were told that we've risen above all those fears. We know better than to project those fears upon our notion of God. And, and because the evangelical has not wanted to be dismissed outright by those holding this enlightened view of an understanding of what God is like, a number in the evangelical community began to avoid any mention of God's wrath and God's hatred of sin in their own teaching and in their own preaching and their own approach to how they discipled people and brought people to faith and discipled them in their faith. But the Bible is clear. God is not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. James tells us in his own writing, in his own book, that in God there is no shadow of turning. And listen, God is a God of wrath. You can't gloss over the account that we find in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 of God coming to judge the world and the world of men with a great flood in which after the judgment there's only one family, eight members that survive that great flood and all the rest are destroyed. And this is an Old Testament teaching, but we have to remember that it's mentioned multiple times in the New Testament. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself referred to it as he used it to, for that great day of wrath, he used it to project the minds of those he was listening to to a further day of wrath that was yet to come. And that day said, as in the days of Noah, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Another day of wrath is coming, he said. So you can't dismiss this idea of wrath as an Old Testament notion. Unless you say that Jesus himself is locked in this primitive state, in this darkened state of primitive and fearful man. And in the same way, you can apply the same argument to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, in which two whole cities were destroyed and only one family was saved. Yet the Lord Jesus referred to Sodom and Gomorrah on more than one occasion, and he said that it would be worse than the day of judgment for Capernaum, the city that he came from and that heard him preach, than would be for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment, which also tells us that the great judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah didn't come when God rained fire and hail and brimstone down upon that city, but there's a day of judgment still coming for them, being held in lieu for them in the final day of great judgment and we can go to the story of the, in the Old Testament of the rescue of the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. And we can read of the ten plagues that God sent down upon Egypt, including the final plague, which was the destruction of all the firstborn of Egypt. And we can recount how the people of Israel were saved through the dividing of the waters in the Red Sea. But we can forget that those same waters came down falling upon the Egyptian army and destroyed them all. There's a depiction in the Old Testament of the wrath of God, and yet... You'll find in the New Testament that account is referred to on more than one occasion as an illustration of the salvation that God is providing for us and what is made available as a saving power. have to remember that the gospel accounts begin with one individual who comes upon the scene to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes proclaiming a message that is very akin to the messages of all the prophets of Israel because he's the last great prophet of Israel. He comes along and he begins to proclaim to the people that they are to repent and believe and they are to flee the wrath to come. 
The Pharisees hear about John the Baptist's message and how popular it is and the baptism that he is carrying out, which is a baptism calling upon the people to turn from their sin and to wash themselves from their sins. And the Pharisees come because they want to be in on this popular movement themselves and they want to be identified with the people. And when they show up before John, John turns to them and says this. You find it in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. He looks at the Pharisees that are arriving and he says, Oh, generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit fit for repentance. Now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that brings not forth good fruit will be cut down and cast into fire. Indeed, I baptize you with water under repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will purge his floor and gather his wheat in the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, those are, in a sense, some of the first words of the gospel accounts of the New Testament, and kind of sounds like wrath to me. Kind of sounds like wrath that's being projected here. We like to remember and teach our children the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We don't always teach them John 3.36. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. He that believes not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. I note to you that in the book of Matthew, for every mention by the Lord Jesus of heaven, there are three mentions by Jesus of hell. That's an interesting thing to take in mind. John Phillips, who's a commentator, writes this, quote, Jesus, quote, referred to the destiny of the damned nearly twice as often as he did that of the blessed. The New Testament unfolds before us with a steady reminder that in the midst of the grace and mercy of God providing salvation to all who believe and trust in the Son, there is this awful reality of the wrath of God that abides upon all those who reject him and one day will climax in an ultimate release upon all of the earth. If you read the book of Romans here, you'll see that actually on 10 different times, in fact, here's an assignment for you. You can go, if you've got a Bible app on your phone or on your computer, you type in the wrath of God and you read the places where the phrase the wrath of God is used in the book of Romans, you'll see it 10 times. Read all 10 of them. Paul takes this idea of the wrath of God and he sets the gospel that is the message of Romans, he sets it within the context or he sets it against the backdrop of impending wrath. The good news comes, the gospel comes, but it comes in light of the fact that all individuals are facing the wrath of God. Listen to verse 18 again. The wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all manner of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This morning, again, we're just going to speak on this idea of the wrath of God. We'll look at this Next phrase, all in godliness and righteousness of men on another occasion. But what we need to see here is that God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace and goodness and justice and righteousness and wrath. That's what the Bible teaches us. Let's consider this a little bit more. Let's consider what it means when we say the wrath of God. And here's... A brief definition for the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God's settled, consistent, constant, 
antagonism towards sin and evil. It's God's constant antagonism towards sin and evil. It is the wrath of God is the response of a holy God against the expression of all unholiness. It is the response of a loving God against the sin that attacks all of his love interests and wars against all of his love interests. Wrath, in a sense, when you read it in the New Testament, in this light, if you put it together, is the, the content of judgment that is pending upon the sinner based upon the justice of God. There is building up a judgment against the one who is rejecting God and rebelling against God and sinning against God and who is, as a result, being a purveyor of sin in all of God's creation. And there is upon that person this content of judgment that's coming against him that is embodying or it expresses or holds within it the wrath of God. And so Romans chapter 2, I think it's verse 5, says that we are storing up for ourselves wrath against the day of wrath. Our sin and our activity in sin and our rebellion against God and our choosing our own way and our projecting that sin upon others around us in the face of God's goodness and God's salvation, we are ourselves storing up, in a sense, this content of wrath or judgment of God against sin. Wrath ultimately, the wrath of God ultimately is the expression of judgment that is applied with finality by the sovereign power of God at the end of the age. And so the Bible speaks often of the final day of wrath that is coming because of God. Now, there are some suggest that this idea of the wrath of God is merely a principle of justice that is set in motion when we sin. In other words, it's an impersonal act of God in which, in a sense, there's almost a mechanical response of His justice that comes upon those who turn against him and sin. But in a sense, in this idea, God is impassive. He's just simply letting the mathematical consequences, you might say, of turning away from God and living in sin fall upon those who behave in that way. Wrath is what men, in this sense, bring upon themselves when they go against the moral law of God in the same way that they would fall to the ground if they jumped out of window and the laws of gravity would take hold of them. The law, the moral law takes hold of them when they sin against God and just carries them into consequences. And this is what the Bible means by the wrath of God. God is removed. He's impersonally and dispassionately looking on as men engage and encounter the wrath of God in this way. But the wrath of God, when you read it in the Bible, seems to be quite a personal thing. The very idea of wrath seems to indicate something of personal expression. Some individuals will say, well, there's no emotion in God in these things. Well, I have to tell you, I would rather God feel some emotion when he brings his judgments against sin than to do it without any emotion and passion whatsoever. Do you know, we had to punish our children at times. They were naughty. They didn't do what they were told to do. In fact, they were outright disobedience to us and sometimes outright defiant. And you began to realize that there was a little bit of a battle being staked here. They were going to continue to be naughty until you stopped them from being naughty and... Uh, that kind of made you angry. You spanked them, but you were a little upset because you were upset they made you spank them, that they brought you to that point in time. You wanted to hug them. You wanted to love them, but you disciplined them said, And then after you're done, you took them in your arms and you gave them a hug, but you, there was a little bit of uh, anger behind it, and it wasn't entirely wrong. In fact, a dispassionate spanking of your children without any emotion whatsoever some cold, hard legislation of the law would not be an expression of love. 
an expression of indifference. Just some calculating observance of the law and the rules and then a slap. No, this is not how God reveals himself. The wrath of God is personal against sin because sin is a challenge to his personal holiness and his personal justice and his personal righteousness. And the wrath of God is personal because sin, as it comes upon us and is expressed from us, is an attack on that which he loves and has interest in. If you were in your front yard working in your front yard and you had a little child, your little baby, and you put your little toddler on a blanket to kind of play with some toys on the blanket in the sun as you were working in your garden and all of a sudden a neighbor's dog came to the yard growling and rushing towards that blanket where your child was, how do you react? What kind of intensity comes upon you? You, you would feel a rise of anger. You would be in complete revolt against such an insinuation attack on what is yours and what you love and you would come against it with a fury and that's, that's something of a picture of God's wrath against sin and the, pro- the propagation of sin through our lives. So we should not think that God is dispassionate or unemotional when we speak of his wrath. One of the reasons, by the way, that people reject the idea of God's wrath is they compare it with their own wrath and those events when human beings gather in a rage and a riot against some great offense and this usually leads to moments in which they lose control and they vent an eruption of protest and anger and that's how we get road rage or that's how we get these great protests that go on where people go march through the streets and overturn cars and break windows and set buildings on fire and that's their rage and that's their wrath and they know oddly enough The same generation that are conducting themselves in this way want to believe that God is a docile God of love while they carry out their, quote, acts of justice and their acts of riot against injustice. And it tells you that deep down inside, they know what is motivating their actions and their activity. They know that it's not entirely pure and just and right and good and true. And they don't want to put the same label upon God. Very same people running riot in the streets, want us to believe that God is a God of docile love, who doesn't judge anybody and doesn't harm anybody. And but when we look at the passage and we see this, we have to understand that nonetheless, our strong and violent reactions against what we think are unjust reflects something of the truth that God builds a strong, violent reaction against what he knows is unjust. But here's the difference. God is never out of control. God's rage is never one that is out of control. God's responses are always in proportion to what is before him, and they are exacting to an exacting degree of what is due and what is right in his justice. His wrath is curtailed by his own righteousness and complete justice. We might think of an illustration of this. The Lord Jesus, on two different occasions, came to the temple. There were individuals who had overtaken a part of the temple that was supposed to be used for the Gentile people to come and pray and meet with God. But instead, the leaders of the temple, the Sadducees in this case, had set up a market or fair in that place where trade and barter could take place. When people come in to bring their lambs for sacrifice, they would always find something wrong with the lambs they brought. So they'd have to buy an approved lamb. And it would be at an exorbitant price. And they were using it to take advantage of the people in their worship. And they'd 
made that place a marketplace to conduct their business. And as a result, they had pushed out the Gentile community from the very place in the temple that had been set up for them to meet with God and worship God. And the Lord Jesus, on two different occasions, we're told, made a whip. And he went through the marketplace and he was overturning tables and he was whipping people and he was beating them. He drove out the money changers in the temple and he said, this place has been called a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. There was something violent about his actions, something calculated and he was angry. And it wasn't the first time, by the way, that he saw this trade going on in the temple. But at just the right time and just the right moment, he made a demonstration of God's attitude towards what men were doing in that place. And he upturned the tables and his lashes fell upon those who were acting unjustly. But here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Not one coin flying through the air as he flipped through those tables landed or struck an innocent party or an innocent member at that time. Not one lash they swung about, swung and fell upon a person who was simply trying to find a lamb that he could trade in so that he could go and make his offering in the temple. It was only meant for and against those who were carrying on this crime and cheating the people in this way. And this is a revelation of the wrath of God. The righteous anger, the righteous calculated, controlled anger of God against sin. That's the wrath of God. Here's what we have to ask next. The question is, how is the wrath of God revealed to us? It says, the wrath of God is revealed to us. And there are any number of ways in which we can consider this. And one of the ways we could say it is, well, the wrath of God is revealed. If you read the history of the Bible, you'll see multiple occasions in which God brings judgment upon different individuals and judgment upon different nations. And there are examples of the wrath of God being revealed. You don't have to just read your Bible that way. You can read through human history and see there are times in which wicked nations and people have been put down and God has worked upon it to bring destruction upon them. And so we'd say, okay, here are expressions where God is dealing with sin and God is dealing with the sin of individuals and the sin of nations and pouring out his wrath. And so you see God judging the nation of Judah by bringing the Babylonians against them. And this is an expression of God's judgment. But the Babylonians were harsher and they did it for the wrong reasons, although God used them. And so then God brought against the Babylonians the Persians. And the Persians brought judgment upon the Babylonians. But the Persians were harsher than they should have been. And so God then brought the Greeks down upon the Persians. And the Greeks were excessive in their judgments. And so God brought the Romans down upon the Greeks. And on and on went these expressions of God's judgment throughout history coming upon different individuals. The interesting thing here is that this happens periodically in history, but only periodically. And it happens to some individuals, but to our eyes, it only happens to some individuals. If you study history instead, what you would actually see is that a lot of people and a lot of nations get away with a lot of bad things. And begin to think, wow, people begin to think, we can put things over on God. We can get away with whatever we want to get away with. And they do. There's far less justice applied than we might want to see applied to the things that sinful men do. In fact, Paul actually spoke about this, the history of the human race, where we can see expressions and revelations of God's wrath and judgment against sin periodically, but Paul gives a basically overview of what we are seeing and what's taking place in human history. In Acts chapter 17, he's speaking to the philosophers in Athens, and he tells them that the way that God has primarily dealt with the sin of the human race up to this point in time is that Paul says he has, quote, overlooked it. He seems to be passing it by. Then Paul says, but now is the time to repent because God has appointed a day of judgment and he's appointed one who is going to judge. 
Actually, go to Acts chapter 17. Let me read to you verses 30 and 31 of Acts chapter 17. Paul speaks of this climatic day of God's wrath, of God's judgment. This is the day in which that wrath that individuals are storing up, it's the day of wrath that they will finally come to. Truly, these times of ignorance, God has overlooked, he says, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And so God deals in wrath and judgment of sin throughout human history, and yet finally God will fill in all the gaps and deal with sin at a final judgment. I just have come from three weeks on the Oregon coast. You know, enjoying the Oregon coast is not a time in which you want to spend thinking about wrath. You know, on your vacation, you think, you know what, I've, I know when I get back, the next verse is on the wrath of God. Let's, let's meditate on that for the next three weeks. But, but the thought did come to us. As you go and you look at the beautiful sunset that's setting over the beach and the people frolicking in the sand, that, that they should not think because they're enjoying the sunset and they're enjoying these beautiful views that they can continue to live in defiance and in sin against God and that God is not going to hold them into account. The goodness of God is calling men to repentance. That's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 2. The very next verse says, men who do not respond to that goodness are restoring up for themselves wrath against the day of wrath. All of those pleasures, all those benefits, all these wonderful expressions of God's creation around us, all goodness poured out upon us, all not turning to him, all storing up wrath against us. Donald Gray Barnhouse spent, I think, seven years preaching on the book of Romans, something like that. I have the first volume. I don't have the whole volume of all his sermons, but I have the first volume, and he comes upon this passage, and he tells a story. You'll tell that this was written probably in the 40s when he gave this illustration, but he tells a story of a little church out in the country, out in farming country, and that they would meet on Sunday for their worship but uh, in this farming community. But there was a farmer that was rather defiant of the Christian way of doing things. And, and he had actually had a number of fields that he was farming in and, and tending to. But he made sure that he tended on one field only on Sunday during the hour in which the church was worshiping. And so he would plow that field on that hour and the people would be worshiping. And they'd hear the tractor coming from the far end of the fields that came near to the church and it would pivot around by the church, and it would pull away, and they'd hear it pulling away, and then they'd hear it coming back, and all through the time of worship, he'd that farmer plowing his field, and then, you know, later on, he'd come back and do other agricultural services of that field, and this went on all through that season as he worked on that field. He would pull that tractor around them, and he would plow, and he would disc, and then he would harrow, and then he would drag, and then he'd fertilize, and he would cultivate that field every Sunday during the hour of worship in that church. Finally, at the end of the season, he came and he cut his crop and he stacked and he husked his corn and he carried it to the crib. And when he was all done, he wrote a letter to the editor of a weekly that was published in that area in which he explained to them that that one field that he had cared for all during that time was the field that gave the highest yield of all the fields that he worked in. So how, he said, could you say God is a God who judges? How do you Christians respond when you say God is a God who judges? When I've been so successful cultivating that field on the day and hour in which you're worshiping. And so the, the publisher put that letter in the newspaper as it was and just made one little response at the end of the letter. And the editor's response was simply this, quote, 
God does not settle his accounts in the month of October. End quote. <laughs> there will be a final day of God's wrath. There will be a settling of all accounts against all unrepented and uncovered sin. That's what we're learning here. The wrath of God is also revealed in our conscience. If you go on and we'll read the next couple chapters that Paul will write here, he, he shows us something of the course of the wrath of God. And one of the things he points out is that we see the wrath of God exposed in our lives through our own conscience. It's kind of an interesting to note that the enlightened man who dismisses superstition and the idea of God's wrath and rejects the idea of God's judgment is also the person who he should, if he really believed that, smile dismissively when we tell him about hell, but he bristles against it. He doesn't like it at all. He rejects it. He becomes quite angry. And the reason he's angry is because it's not a new idea to him. It's not a new concept to him. You're not the first one who suggested it. His own conscience has suggested that to him. He has his own fear and his own knowledge. And he's fighting against it and repressing it. And he doesn't like you when you aid his conscience in saying those types of things. And he becomes quite angry at these things. Men love the idea of justice, but they don't like the idea of judgment. Justice, they think, somehow will work for them. Judgment, they question whether it will. Judgment means being found out. And they're fearful of being found out. Our conscience tells us, you're going to be found out. God knows you're going to be found out. That's somewhat an expression of the wrath of God. Also, the wrath of God can be seen in the sections of Roman, the next couple chapters of Roman, and particularly in this last half of, of chapter 1. It can be seen in just God allowing the natural course of our moral defiance of God sweep through our lives and sweep through the life of a society and so that that society festers and lies and lust and thirst for pleasure and power and eventually they go into rot and ruin and that's the portrait that's given for us in, in Romans chapter 1. And that can be an expression of God letting wrath, His wrath come upon us. He just lets the rot of sin come upon us in our land. But having said all that, I don't believe this is what's being referred to when we're told that the wrath of God is revealed. What we have to remember is Paul is speaking about the gospel that he's not ashamed of. It's the gospel that reveals the righteousness of God in verse 17 from faith to faith. And verse 18 is a parallel to verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. And here in verse 18 we have a parallel verse where it says that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what this passage is revealing to us and what we're seeing this is that the gospel reveals God's righteous way of saving the unrighteous, but it also reveals God's righteous way, the gospel does, of judging sin. It reveals God's heart to save and it also reveals the intensity of God's wrath against our sins. How? How? Well, the fullest expression of God's wrath against sin is revealed at the cross of God's Son. It's when Jesus Christ died, when he suffered the justice that we deserve, when he suffered in our place the judgment that God has set against our sins, Jesus experienced and drew into himself as God his own divine wrath against our sins. The gospel tells the story of God's salvation from God's own wrath. That's what you're saved from. You're saved from God's animosity, his constant, consistent animosity against your rebellion and your sin, and you need to be rescued from that. And that's what Jesus did 
when he died on the cross for you, he took into himself wrath, the wrath you deserve. The Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote these words on the wrath of God. Not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against rebellious devils, nor the groans of damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his son. The gospel reveals the wrath of God, that Jesus suffered and died for you. Every time that we go and we seek to wash ourselves and cleanse ourselves of our sins, every time we respond to God, you know, it's a wonderful truth about the Christian. The Christian has sin in themselves, but we're no longer in sin. When I believed and trusted in Jesus Christ, I was put into Christ. I was put into all his righteousness, but sin is still in me. And God comes and he judges the sin in me and he deals with it. And, and as I do, I cry out and I call for God's forgiveness and I receive the outflowing or the outpouring of what was provided for me at the cross of God's mercy and God's grace and forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ washing me and cleansing me and making me right before God. And I'm so thankful for that. I live in that every single day of my life because sin is in me, but I'm not in sin. I'm not in sin. Now here's the sad thing. For the person who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ, sin is in them, but they're also in sin. And the day is coming. For me, God judges the sin that's in me. He convicts me and reveals my sin, and I confess it, and he washes and cleanses me. God judges in the believer the sin that is in them. But for the unbeliever, he judges the man in his sin. He judges the man in his sin, and wrath and judgment comes upon them. There's only one answer for you. Get in Christ. Get in him. Get in the one who in your place has bore all that wrath for you and suffered in your place and opened for you in that place a constant stream of forgiveness and cleansing and life, a constant place in which God, the righteous God, may righteously save you, may justly forgive you. Live under that fount. Live under that grace. The wrath that has come and men have experienced is but a foretaste of the wrath that will come. But all the suffering for that sin reached its fullest expression at the cross. It's there that we escape God's wrath. It's there that we find forgiveness. It's there that we enjoy His mercy and His grace. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, truths we want to tread before fearfully, lightly, holy ground in which we want to move our shoes and tread in lightly in your presence. Awesome and wonderful that you receive us in your Son. But, oh God, a salvation not without consequence. Not because my sin was nothing and not because you've made nothing of my sin. It was serious and profound. And it found its resting place on him. He suffered there. He bore your antagonism against sin. He took its weight. He paid its penalty. To open up to me, to all these here, 
place of unending flow of righteousness and mercy and grace and love, a reconciled life with you. And we praise you for the gospel of our Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Salvation, dear God, that reveals to us the extent of your hatred of sin, but the depth of your love for the sinner. Lord Jesus, I pray for any and all that might come in the hearing of this word, that you would unmask before them the reality of what they may be suppressing. You are real, you are there, you stand against their rebellion and your sin, but you're ready to forgive them and receive them through your Son, Jesus Christ. Here is where the gospel begins to be written proudly and wonderfully and boldly and triumphantly in our lives. Here we want to receive it. Now a table is before us and we'll partake of it. And we'll remember the one who gave his life and sacrifice for us in order that we might feast upon him and his salvation. We'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.